Thank you, Brent. Good morning. Wow. Thank you for that scattered applause. I feel so loved by 26% of Sanctuary Church. I'm so happy to be back here. Um, I do feel like part of the family already. You guys make me feel that way. Um, it was funny. I'll, I'll just I'll share this. I am kind of famous among my friends for having mishaps whenever I fly anywhere. In fact, I would just encourage you, please, if you ever see me getting onto a plane, board another flight. I am like Jonah. I am the common denominator for all sort of disaster and calamity. Sometimes it's you know very minor, and this wasn't a big deal. But I had a really funny experience yesterday because. Well, I was flying in from Charlotte, and I'll back up like this. So Friday night, I stayed up till 2.30 in the morning finishing our taxes, because it is that time of year. I wanted to do that before I left. Got up at like 6.30 the next morning to get ready to come here. It was a short night, but I was so looking forward to the flight because I thought, A, I'm going to have time to, you know, tighten up my notes for the sermon, try to get my head in the game, and I am now reading, and I'll say more about this later, but there's a Japanese novelist I love named Shusako Indo, Christian novelist. And I have a new book of his. It's not, I mean, he's dead. It's, sorry, it's new to me. Um, I have this novel that I just started. I'm like, I'm going to read the book, and I'm going to work on the notes, and I'm going to have this really serene flight. Like, this is going to recharge my batteries. So I'm flying into Dallas, and I'm walking on the plane, and the guy in front of me has a camouflage hat on. And it's so apparent that he's just super drunk. I mean, just unbelievably drunk. And he's talking to every single person loudly as we're coming through, like the guy who was like, um, the, the, the guy, who, one of the, like, the tech crew guys, he's coming off, I don't know what anybody does, you know what I'm saying, he was coming off from loading luggage or something, he walked through and he's like, hey man, hey buddy, uh, can you get me a window seat on the plane, I, I'm just hoping, like I already had a few beers and we have some more and maybe I could open the window and smoke on the way, wouldn't that be cool, <laughs> and I was like, and except much louder than this, and I just, and like everybody that came through, the pilot was actually standing near the door, he's like, hey, I like them stripes. How'd you get them stripes? And I was just like, and I was thinking walking on the plane, I was like, oh God, I hope I'm not sitting beside this person. So of course I end up sitting beside this person in the middle seat, let me point out. I'm a big man already, and if I'm not on an exit row and I'm in the middle seat, I'm already a very unhappy camper. But I'm sitting, I was like, oh no. And man, sure enough, like as soon as we sat down and got going, by the way, if this sounds like it's going to be a great story, like lower your expectations. When I was a kid coming up, the evangelists that came through town always had these awesome stories about people getting saved on the airplane. Y'all ever hear the evangelists like do that? I don't think a lot of those stories were true, um, actually. <laughs> Although I'm not sure because for like we preachers, that is actually about the only time we ever talk to non-Christians is on an airplane. It's the only time. So you never know. And, um, but like, man, as soon as I sit down, I mean, he starts talking super loud. He wasn't being vulgar or rude. He was just, I just want to do my thing. So, you know, I pulled, off, I pulled up my laptop after we got a little bit in the air, and I was going to work on sermon notes. We had Wi-Fi on flight, so I was trying to respond to a few people. And he starts, like, commenting on everything that I'm doing. Like, I didn't introduce myself. He's like, so, Jonathan, I see you're a preacher. Yes, yes, I am. I was trying to respond to somebody on Facebook. 
And on my Facebook page, there's a picture from when I had long hair, which I did up until about, I don't know, four or five months ago. And he's like, hey, is that you? Man, you look like you, were, you were, could have been in a band then. He's like, how long ago was that? I said, it was about a year and a half ago. Year and a half? That looks like it was like 10 or 15 years ago. You, you've aged like 15 years since that picture. And I, actually, I thought to myself, that drunk guy is right. I mean, I really have. That's all true. And I was trying, like, I want, I, I'm chronically nice, like, you know, I'm trying to sort of gauge, but he's just doing all the talking, you know, and I tried to read my book later, and he kept talking to me while I was reading the book, like, that didn't do anything. I shut my eyes and tried to go to sleep. He'd start talking again, like, nothing seemed to help. He did end up asking me about the Lord, and I'll be honest with you, though, I know that everybody's pulse for these stories, like, well, this is so good for a preacher to be, like, out in the real world, and I have friends in the real world. I just didn't want this yesterday. Sure enough, like, about midway through the flight, he's like, can I ask you something? I was like, yeah. It's like, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. Does that mean I'm going to go to heaven? And I'm thinking, I don't want to have this conversation right now. I don't want to talk about heaven. And see, I engaged that. I tried to say nice things to it, but he was so drunk, I know he's not going to remember this. I mean, the next thing after this actually was that then it was like, now about this ISIS stuff. I don't know what a man of your stature thinks about it, but I just believe when you've got people like that in the world, we've got to take them out. Don't you think? I'm like, oh, man, it's complicated. I do, like, I do not want to do this. So that was two hours and ten minutes yesterday, and it was just, I don't even know why I'm telling this story because it doesn't really connect with anything that I'm doing. Um, I just thought it was a really fun story. It was, and a fun little flight. I just have these kinds of experiences. I, actually, it was better than I told you. I just did a bad job of telling it. What actually happened was I let him in the sinner's prayer. <laughs> Then I asked him, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? He said to me, <laughs> I've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I laid hands on him. He started speaking in tongues. And so far as I know, he's still speaking in tongues right now. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to, uh, to uh, John chapter 20. Transitions, transitions. That just felt like a story that needed to be told. I don't, I don't know what the moral of it is yet. John chapter 20. I'm being so silly, but have felt a lot of urgency about this message, actually. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd really like to, to read the text first and would just ask you to be really open and, and prayerful. And um, just receptive to what the Holy Spirit wants to do. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Note that phrase. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, 
and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Pray with me for just a moment. Lord, open up our hearts and our ears and our minds. Let us be so attentive to the voice of your Spirit. Let us see. Let us hear. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This is my, I'll say it like this. This is the most underrated Easter story to me. I love this story. Um, And it's not one I've ever preached about before, actually. But think about this. This is the first Easter. And, of course, we always think of Easter as big celebration, a lot of joy and all of that. And we do get to some joy in the text. One of the things I find so fascinating about this particular passage is that this is evening of the first Easter. And I don't even notice, but like nobody's having a good time here. What we see is that night has fallen and the disciples are locked into the house for fear of the Jews, of their own people. They're afraid that their own people who have just crucified Jesus, the religious community conspiring with the Romans, are now going to come and get them too. So they're, they've got the doors locked. They're pacing the floor. And, you know, however you want to line this up with what we have, like in the other gospel texts, we know that Mary saw Jesus that morning. So there are rumors going around about resurrection. But the bottom line is, when you're in a place where you're afraid and you, you feel isolated and you feel alone and you're, uh, th- th- there's a sense of confusion, there's a sense of bewilderment, these disciples have so much to process here. I mean, within the last couple of days, they've gone through everything from feeling disappointed in God, feeling disappointed in Jesus, that he perhaps did not turn out to be the Messiah in the way they were hoping he was going to become. Surely they're disappointed in themselves because they did proclaim to love Jesus. And of course, you know, we always focus on Peter's denying Jesus, but all of them fled the scene. It's only the women who stayed. So now they have to deal with the fact that they couldn't even stick around because they were so afraid. But they don't even have time to grieve these. They don't have time to work through emotions. They don't have time to grieve. They're scared to death that the mob will come to get them too. So as they're locked in, not only have all these awful things happened, I mean, they, they don't even have time to even deal with all that because they know that the threat is still out there and they don't know what's going to happen to them. So the first Easter night, everybody is scared to death. They are fearing actual persecution, which, by the way, is different than white North American Christians who, rather than fearing actual persecution sit around listening to loud, angry cable news where we tell each other there are people out to get us. You see how that's like different things between being persecuted and having a persecution complex or a martyr complex? I'm just saying, it's my third time preaching at Sanctuary. Is this too much for like a third date? Because I have to get this out of my system. This is just, this is just my week. I feel like I keep hearing white North American Christian leaders talk about persecution here 
in a way that sounds like we're equivocating any inconvenience we have in some kind of culture wars or whatever to like martyrs. And it's just making, I'm afraid one of these times I'm going to actually have an aneurysm when I'm listening to some of this. <laughs> you know, because it's like, really, if you, uh, we've just seen in the last week just how much uh, within our country we still have deep issues of race to deal with. There are so many folks within our borders that don't feel safe for different reasons, those of us who don't know what it's like to have a panic attack because we see blue lights in the rearview mirror and don't know what it's like to ever be bullied in school to the point of feeling like you're going to might take your own life and don't know what it's like to be a Christian living in Syria or in Africa or in India, or, you know, any of those things. Like, we have no right to talk about persecution. So I'm just saying to my fellow white North American Christians, those of you here, we're not persecuted. I just want to give that public service now. Listen to news less and just, anyway, I'm sorry. That's just, I just need to get that out of my system. Back to the message. We're, they're locked in and they're afraid because there's an actual threat of persecution. Not an imagined one, but a real threat of persecution. They don't know what's going to happen here. And one of the things I find most provocative about this scene is that you know, as Christians, we believe that since Jesus has now risen from the dead, now keep in mind this has already happened, Jesus has already got up, and the Christian account of the death and resurrection of Jesus is, on one hand, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything, you know, like literally changes the course of history. Uh, resurrection actually changes the cosmos. I mean, we understand it as the first day of the new creation. We understand that like nothing goes back after God has risen from the dead. In Herbert McCabe's language, the worst thing that could happen in, to humanity has already happened in that God died. The son of love was crucified. Love itself was nailed to that cross. And yet, God has overcome through resurrection. I mean, this, this changes everything. It changes, it changes the destiny of, of, of all things. I mean, the whole creation is different because of what happened. And yet, there's this other way that the fact that Jesus has got out of that tomb has not changed anything at all. And that's the tension. Everything has changed and nothing has changed. Because for as much as we believe that resurrection has altered the state of things, that doesn't mean that your people still aren't going to come after you with swords and spears. That doesn't mean that people still don't want to kill you. That doesn't mean that you still can't go bankrupt. That doesn't mean that all the relationships have already been solved and worked out. That doesn't mean that your job doesn't suck. You see what I'm saying? Just because Jesus has risen from the dead does not mean that the external world has necessarily changed at all in those ways. The threat out there is still real. And of course, we know that these disciples will ultimately be martyred for their faith. They're locked in in fear. And in so many ways, the world as they knew it the world that had denied Jesus, crucified Jesus, where they felt rejected, where they felt out of place, that world in so many ways had not changed at all. Everybody else is going about their business like usual, and they are, in fact, still in hot water with the authorities. And yet the beautiful thing about this is in the middle of these scared, out-of-their-minds disciples who are just trying to get through the day, having the most miserable Easter ever, locked in, thinking that people might be coming to get them, suddenly Jesus shows up. And I love that this is the kind of context where Jesus always shows up, especially as a product of Pentecostal charismatic culture like many of you 
we talk so much in my world, always did, about like creating perfect conditions for God to move. And, you know, everybody needs to be sinless and righteous and have fasted for 50 days. And if you're getting just the right, safely. how about this? Here's the, why don't we turn this into a formula? Get people locked in a room, scared to death, just a raw, tingling mass of humanity, scared, paranoid, uh, uh, unsure what to do, completely uncertain, and let Jesus show up in the middle of that, right? I mean, that's what he does. Jesus appears in the middle of all of that messiness. So circumstances don't have to just be perfect. In fact, I would go so far as to say when you have people that do feel scared, broken, and, and they are locked into that kind of space and they're desperate, this is, in fact, a perfect environment for God to show up. Because he doesn't even have to be invited. It's not like they're praying. They're asking for some kind of resurrection appearance. Jesus just does it. That's the great thing. You, don't, you, you can't prepare yourself for it. He just, Jesus just kind of happens to you. That's how I think of it sometimes. He just kind of happens to you in the middle of a moment like this, right in the middle of all the fear and doubt and panic and confusion and bewilderment and all the things that you're, that you're unsure of. Here comes Jesus smack dab in the middle of all that. And one of the things I love most about this text is that when Jesus does appear to them, like rather than giving some kind of a victory speech or turning this into some kind of pep rally or whatever, the very first thing that Jesus does is he shows the disciples his wounds. I'm so fascinated by that, that Jesus shows up in the middle of their fear and that he immediately, like straight away, shows his wounds. It's the only way that the disciples can believe that Jesus is real is if they see his wounds. I would even go so far as to say that's the only way that anybody ever knows that any other human being is real is if they see our wounds I mean, the, the, the wounds and the scars that we attempt to so desperately conceal, Jesus leads with those. The, 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 those wounds are what authenticate Jesus to his disciples. Have you ever thought about this? If, if, if he's powerful enough to have risen from the dead, he wouldn't have had to keep the wounds, right? Anybody, like, you know the X-Men movies or comic books? You remember Wolverine? I'm kind of going for that hair right now. Like... You know he has that mutant healing factor thing. People shoot him with a gun and immediately like, it like heals itself. This is not the notes for sure. <laughs> like that, that, that superhuman thing. And so like, you know, cut an arm off of the sword. It grows right back, that kind of thing. Like, I mean, I'm thinking that if you can rise from the dead, then you're capable of doing some minor cosmetic surgery on yourself so that you don't have to go around with unsightly scars. But Jesus comes back and he keeps the wounds because it's his choice to keep the wounds. And it's his choice to reveal those wounds to the disciples without even being asked because he wants them to have that sense of continuity. I'm the same one that was crucified. Look, here, you can see this. And when poor Thomas misses this, like I'm thinking, man, if you, if you miss a moment like that, that's unfortunate. If you were out doing it, like you just missed it. Jesus comes back and does the same thing a week later just so Thomas can have the experience that he needs to have. And Thomas, of course, you know, I have a whole riff about this. I've, I've loved Thomas for years because I feel like he gets such a bad rap. You know, we always refer to him as like Doubting Thomas. Please don't ever call him Doubting Thomas. It's just so unfair. One moment of doubt is recorded for this guy in Scripture. And for 2,000 years, we've been calling him Doubting Thomas. That is so unfair. 
When I was in middle school, all the bigger kids gave me wedgies every day. But no one, now that I'm 37, refers to me as Wedgie Martin. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's just not right. I'm sure Thomas did lots of other good things. This is not, uh, you know, but, but we get, he gets labeled with this. Jesus doesn't show frustration with Thomas. In fact, the, the remarkable thing for me is that, you know, it's Jesus' invitation. Okay, if you need to touch, then, then touch. I, I, I wonder if this was painful for Jesus. I don't know. I don't know if the wounds were still sore. I know there's something really powerful about this idea that God is tender enough here with Thomas to say, if you need to touch me, you can touch me. You can touch me in my wounds. You can touch these scars. If that's what you need, that's okay. I just, for me, there's something very powerful in this about the way that Jesus comes to the disciples in their own woundedness and brokenness. And it's in the revelation of his own wounds that he's bringing healing and life to them. Not in denying them. Do you hear what I'm saying? But in revealing those wounds. That's how he's healing the hearts of his disciples. It's it's through revealing his own brokenness. There's, um, so I mentioned earlier, maybe that's that's how I can make a legitimate connection with my opening story. Shusaku Indo. That was the whole thing, was just setting up Shusaku Indo. Japanese Christian novelist who, um, for me, is such a fascinating person because he, you know, he kind of grew up Catholic, um, very much then, you know, was a Christian by choice, but always struggled with how to reconcile Christianity. He often saw his, the Catholicism he grew up with as being sort of just very Western and European, and he struggled with how to wrestle uh, with that with his kind of Eastern way as a Japanese man. He often kind of works this out in his fiction. So I was reading this novel of his a few weeks ago called Deep River, where he's really dealing with those themes in, in I, I think, a very, just a powerful way. And there's a lot going on in the book, but there's a character named Otsu that I just really love. This, this, uh, he, he's a young Japanese man. He's very awkward. Uh, he also, uh, he, you could see Endo kind of just dealing with a lot of himself here because he grows up in a Catholic home but doesn't know what to do with his own faith. But he, he keeps being drawn to the person of Jesus. So you see him as this awkward young man going to pray in this tiny little chapel and he's overwhelmed by a statue of Jesus where he says the statue just looks like pathetic. Like it's like that Jesus looks almost not only tortured but almost shriveled up. He looks, he looks weak. And this is the image of Jesus that captures Otsu's heart because that Jesus looks awkward. That Jesus looks actually afraid. That Jesus looks like he knows what it is to truly be lonely. And Otsu sees himself in that. That makes him feel like he can connect with that Jesus. So, you know, part of the story is that he, there's, this, there's this young lady. She's not mean-spirited, but she, you know, she just doesn't know what she's doing. Her friends essentially dare her to seduce young Otsu, who at this point is a teenager. She does. He falls in love with her, but she doesn't love him, completely breaks his heart. So then you know, from there, you see him going away with all this rejection. And I don't want to give away everything, but, but where this all lands later in the novel is that you see that young woman, as she's become older, now asking all these questions about faith. She knew that Otsu had become a priest, and she knew that uh, they'd had like intermittent correspondence over the years. But now it's like 30 years later, and she hears that he's serving in a monastery in India. And she goes to India on kind of a spiritual pilgrimage, hoping to reconnect with Otsu, find out where he is. She's got all her own faith questions, etc. And And where this where this all goes is that by the time she gets to this town in India and she's going around and she's looking for Otsu, she goes to the monastery and they act like they barely know who he is. 
Uh, turns out that he actually had been rejected even by the monastery. They often felt like his ways were too unorthodox, his kind of Japanese perspective on things. So he's still dealing with all this rejection, even within the faith now that he loves. So she keeps trying to track him down. And finally, where she finds him is that Otsu, who is still technically a priest and still loves Jesus, dresses in the garb of a poor Hindu servant, essentially, and he goes around the city, which is right by the Ganges River. If you know anything about uh, the culture of that, people in India, especially in the Hindu tradition, they want to be uh, cremated and then spread into the Ganges because it's, there's this idea that it's a good place to be reincarnated from. So oftentimes people who are in the process of dying will try to make a pilgrimage to the Ganges, hoping they can die near there and have their ashes scattered. But inevitably, um, with so many people attempting to do this who are uh, poor and who are alone and have no resources at all, it's very common that people will die before they actually get there. So what he starts doing with the latter years of his life is he just goes to the town every day. He finds people who have died making their own trip to the Ganges. He physically picks them up and puts them on his back, and he carries them down to the river so that they can get a burial with dignity in the way that they would want. And that, that, that's his ministry. That's his whole life. And when she encounters him, you know, she tells him, like, Otsu, you're crazy. Why are you doing this? What does this even mean? This, clearly, your obsession with Jesus has caused you to lose your mind. But he goes back to those earlier images of how he encountered Jesus, his own experiences of rejection at her, at her hands. And like, no, this is, this is the Jesus that I know and I love. This is what I believe Jesus would do. Uh, th- this is the kind of thing I think Jesus would do. He, he's going among the lowest caste, the untouchable folks in India, and giving his life now just to make sure these folks have a dignified, decent burial. It is, it is utterly beautiful and convicting because as I'm reading that, I'm getting such a sense for me of, of the way I think God wants to move in all of us that from our own brokenness, from our own experiences of loneliness, of rejection and pain, from our own wounds, that he wants now to transform that so that, well, using Henri Nouwen's phrase, he can turn us into wounded healers so that we now extend this too. Like, that's what he wants to do with us. Not pretend we don't have scars. Not make them up. Not pretend that we're better than we are. But to revealing our wounds, to go out to others who are wounded. I just, one of the things I left out there is that Otsu also just falls in love with Isaiah 53, the image of Jesus, as the one who's despised and rejected um, who has, who, who's, un, un, who's unattractive, who's not desirable physically. That Jesus who knows what it is to be scorned and mocked. That's, they're, 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 who else can get to know the man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief if you don't have sorrow and you're not acquainted with grief? It, it's actually our own wounds that push us into the presence of that Jesus. It's our own wounds that put us in the kind of state, in the kind of condition where we would even need an appearance like he gives to the disciples here. So all of that stuff, I mean, far from disqualifying us, it, what, it puts us in an ideal position, both for God to move, but also for us to become agents of God's healing in the world, for us to identify. We identify with the loneliness and the suffering of Jesus himself. And in that deep identification, not only does God heal us, and God reveal himself to us, but then God sends us forth into the world from that place. Everything about, the, there's so much I want to say, and I, I mean, this could be content for four messages, but to kind of bring this back around, one of the things I find most fascinating, though, when I reread this is, so it's like, okay, so disciples are 
alone, they're scared, they're worried about what's going to happen. They, we know that they're afraid that the Jewish leaders are going to come and get them and persecute them and all that. I'm fascinated by the fact that when Jesus shows up and does these beautiful things and shows off his wounds, that he goes through all of that and he never once addresses their current situation, you know? Because if I'm one of those disciples, to be like, I mean, after you worship and after you cried and, oh, he's risen and all that, so now what are we going to do about the mob? <laughs> how, how, how are we going to deal with the mob? I mean, this is a practical question. Just for those of you that don't know Jesus very well, I think I could, this bears out in the Gospels and certainly in my life. This is my experience of how God speaks in general. Whatever you think is the problem that you really need God to address, inevitably, he's not going to say anything about it. Not to say he's not going to speak. He's just not going to speak about that. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like whatever you think is, is the issue, typically God doesn't really think that's the major issue. So once you get, your, I mean, when, when we're in that place of confusion and bewilderment, God, I have to get a word about this. It's so frustrating because he will talk to you about everything except for that. And, and the reality here is that Jesus isn't, isn't going to give them instructions on how to avoid the persecution, and he's not going to give them any hopeful words here that, hey, guys, it's going to be okay. Everybody's going to like you. It's just going to be fine. He doesn't change any of that. He doesn't change anything about their external predicament. Instead, he breathes on them, and he breathes the Holy Spirit into them, which is a beautiful thing on one hand, because once the Holy Spirit is, is breathed into us, oh, man, it's, everything changes for us. The way that we see the world is different. The way that the disciples see the mob is going to be different. They're going to live in the same world with all the same threats and challenges and not have to be afraid. But it still doesn't change the exterior predicament. I, I'm just convinced that as often as not, that's how Jesus works in us, is that when we're desperate for God to come in and fix the situation, rather than fixing the situation, tidying everything up, putting a bow on it, saying, here, I've resolved this, I've worked it out, Instead, he wants to breathe his spirit into us so that even if the world outside still looks largely the same and still feels largely the same, we're not the same in it anymore. And we're able to engage all the same threats and all the same turmoil and all the same angst and all the same tensions and not have to be afraid. That's what the gift of the Holy Spirit does to us. And that's my strong sense of what God wants to do here this weekend is to breathe the Holy Spirit into you, to come right smack dab in the midst of all the things about you that are messy and unresolved and not fixed and confused and bewildered, make an appearance, reveal himself by his wounds and breathe life into you, breathe hope into you, breathe his spirit into you. I, I've thought a lot, especially in this last year for me, about the connection between spirit and breath. I really could talk about this for a long time, but this, I'll keep this really short. I just think that when life gets bad enough, right, when the waters are choppy enough and you really don't know what to do and it feels like the world is crashing down around you and there's just no sense of where God is or where you are, you can't kind of find yourself on the map. I have found that in my darkest moments, one of the things that has most anchored me has most kind of 
tethered me to reality again and to God again and to resurrection again has, believe it or not, been the simple practice of intentional breathing. And please don't get weirded out. Oh, he's talking about breathing. That's super new age. I mean, like, no. <laughs> keep in mind, in, in Hebrew and Greek, like, there's no distinction in so many languages between um, breath and spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit is the holy breath of God, the same breath that was breathed into Adam when God creates life to begin with. There's, there's something about breath that when you lose everything else and you don't know what to hang on to or who to hang on to or what you still have, this sense of, but I can still breathe. I still have this breath in this moment. And there have been so many times where I've just had to get really slow and still quiet myself, breathe really, really deep, and let myself be reminded with each breath to, to, to pay attention to my chest rising and falling slowly as my lungs are, 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 are pumping air and to remind myself the, this breath means that God loves me now. This breath means that God is choosing me now. This breath means that God is sustaining me now. He's the one who sustains all things, the very fact that we are able to breathe. This is, this is God's activity and when the world, when everything else has kind of been reduced, it's like, well, I don't know what else I have. I don't know who I am right now, but I still have this breath that God has given me in this moment. And I can let that be enough. I love to breathe personally and do that with a really simple meditation, whatever it might be, just a word or a phrase from Scripture. A lady after the service last night reminded me. She told of her story of reading Brennan Manning's book, Abba's Child, which I love. And she reminded of a story that Manning tells about sitting in a room and just saying over and over again, Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. I'll take just a phrase or a word like that, or maybe even something just like the name of Jesus, and just meditate on that like with each breath, just breathing in and out. And see, that's the wonderful thing about this is, you know, I am enough of a Pentecostal that, you know, I was making fun earlier, but hey, I do believe that God can do supernatural stuff. But note here in this text, when Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit onto them, it doesn't say anything about tongues and healings and any of that. Kind. None of that's going on here. I mean, it, it's the breath of God that's filling their lungs. That's the miracle is that Jesus is breathing into them. And I just think there's something about like that primal, elemental way that God just works that is, that is as simple as receiving God's breath into your lungs, breathing God in. I don't know if that sounds crazy to you, but that's one of the things I've been very conscious of in some of those moments when I've encountered the Lord that way is just allowing myself to kind of meditate on this thought. The very fact that I'm breathing right now means that the Spirit of God is breathing into me. I am, I am breathing in the presence and love of God right now, which really kind of brings this all around full circle, I think, because that becomes the question, right, is when you're alone, bewildered, confused, you don't know what to do, it feels like the world is falling apart, you know, what Jesus says to Thomas after this, I mean, Thomas did get to physically touch the wounds of Jesus. This is great that you get to do this, but the people who are really blessed are the people who don't see and yet are able to believe. And that becomes the question, like, can you be alone and bewildered? Can you be afraid? Can you be on the inside of a locked door? and yet have the faith to believe that Jesus is here and present with you. Even though Easter morning has already passed and nothing about your life has really seemed to change. 
even though you went to church last week and enjoyed the celebration. Have you, have you ever had that feeling? This happens to me a lot. When I've been in some low places, I might go to church, I might listen to a sermon, I might read a Christian book that encourages me, and I have this moment where everything just feels so good because I get that perspective. And then something, it could even be something small, happens as soon, the moment it's over to remind me, oh, wait, my life is still the same, though. <laughs> I'm still dealing with all the same things. That, the, that worship song was great. Didn't Cody do beautiful? Man, that was so awesome. Wait, <laughs> but I still have this thing. <laughs> that, that's, that's a bad moment sometimes where it's that sense of, you know, we had the Easter celebration, but I'm still dealing with, with all the same stuff. The simple question becomes in the midst of all that is can we believe that even though the circumstances have not changed, that Jesus is still with us? that he's present in the confusion, that he's present in the fear, that he's present in all the uncertainty, that he is making himself known even now, that he's loving us in that even now. Because I really am convinced of this, and I am done. I really am convinced that for most of us that have had any kind of a church upbringing for all the great things that come from that, so many of us, this, we just carry this baggage along with us in life that if we're afraid and if we're unsorted, then we just think inevitably, Jesus can't really be here with me now, right? I, I, I never know if references like this are appropriate or okay, but I did think about this just being in Tulsa. I mean, I'm, Charlotte's also a Bible Belt town, but y'all, this is the charismatic like Mecca of the world. And we went through our phase in my part of the country too of like, you know, being careful not to have a negative confession and all of that. Like you don't want to say you're sick because then, you know, God might curse you for not having enough faith, and you'll get really sick. And isn't that terrible, like that whole sense of like, things in my life are awful, and now I'm upset, and now God's going to punish me for being upset. And now you're upset that you're upset. I mean, that's awful, right? I mean, we, have all, all the, we just have all these voices in religious culture that make us feel bad for feeling bad instead of giving us permission to say, you know, this is still hard. I don't like this. This doesn't feel good. But I believe God loves me, and God's here, and God is present, and he's not done with me. And none of this is happening in my life right now changes any of that. Stand with me, if you would. We've come a long way in this sermon. <laughs> I want to I pray with you for a moment. I'm not going to drag this out. The Eucharist is the main event, as always. I just had a special burden this weekend for what this prayer time would look like because I don't want to be spooky about it. I don't want to, you know, raise the stakes. I'm not trying to make magic happen. That's not for me to do. But I really have had just a strong sense this weekend that truly the Spirit of God wants to, to breathe into some of you in this moment. And that, 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 like, like that this time is significant. You were always in the presence of God. Jesus is always here. And it's always God's breath that's filling your lungs, so that's never in question. But we're not always aware of it. And I do think when we're in a room full of people like this and we can borrow one another's faith, because some of you even hear this now, it sounds good, but you don't have faith to believe that for you, that's fine. You can borrow some of my faith because actually I have a hard time believing it for me too. I don't have any difficulty believing for you. I have difficulty believing it for me. So if you don't mind, I'll borrow some of yours and you can have some of mine. I mean, that's what church is about, is that we're leaning on one another's faith. And I have faith for you that God wants to breathe 
on you now and in you now. Let's pray. Lord, I just simply ask that you would visit us now with your holy breath. And um, Lord, I just felt like in the last few days you just keep pressing on me that image from Ezekiel 37 of the prophet speaking to the valley of dry bones and specifically that phrase where you tell Ezekiel to prophesy to the breath, to speak to the breath. <laughs> and that's what we do this morning, Lord, in faith. God, I'm not going to prophesy to the problems. I will prophesy to the breath. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, now to fill your sons and daughters. Let them be saturated with love. Let them experience the sensation of breathing you in and breathing you out. In you, we live and move and have our being. You are sustaining us now. You are holding us now. You are loving us now. I would encourage you, if you feel comfortable, even just to lift your hands and just to receive that right now. Just receive the breath of God. Literally, as you're breathing in and out right now, I just want you to be conscious of that. Breathe deep and just be conscious of the fact God's the one who's sustaining you now. His breath is filling you now. His life is filling you now. Receive comfort. Receive assurance. Receive love. Receive love. And receive more love. That's all he has for you is love. Breathe it in, drink it down, let it in you, let it saturate you, let it cover you, let it fill you. Be filled with the love of God, be filled with the peace of God, be filled with the breath of God. And I ask you finally, um, also if you're not too uncomfortable, seriously, if, you're, if this feels weird, you don't have to do it, but I would love it if you would very gently right now just put your hand on the shoulder of the person next to you, shoulder, arm, something like that that's not too intrusive. And in terms of borrowing faith, I would love it if we could just, just pray a similar prayer for the people around us right now. God, for the, our friends who may not have the strength to believe that you are here. They may not have the imagination. They may not have the eyes to see. They may not have the ears to hear, Lord. But right now, there might be just too much confusion, too much swirling around. Lord, we just pray your breath into them. We pray your peace into them. We pray an awareness of your love into them. And where they cannot believe, we trust you on their behalf, and we pray even now, Lord, that you, you said your spirit would be the comforter, God, for a reason, because we, need, we, we need so much comfort. Lord, just bring your comfort. Lord, you said that those who mourn would be comforted, and I just pray even now for the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the warmth of the Holy Spirit, the life and love and the peace of Jesus. Lord, we pray that over our brothers and sisters. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.